0: This is the Boston Book Festival Virtual Edition. I'm Debbie Porter, founder of the BBF, and you are listening to one in our series of four audio memoir sessions. I hope you enjoy hearing from these wonderful authors, and I hope to see you next year in person. Welcome to Secrets, Lies, and the Mysteries of Our Youth. I'm Heidi Legge, And I will be speaking with three memoirists whose stories reveal layers of mysteries kept secret for years. Helen Fremont, author of The Escape Artist. Betsy Bonner, author of The Book of Atlantis Black. And Nick Flynn, whose latest memoir is This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire. You can find each of their books at bookshop.org, where your purchase helps to support independent bookstores. Fremont's new memoir, The Escape Artist, reveals a childhood of lies and secrets her mother held until her end. Fremont's first memoir, After a Long Silence, was published decades ago, but there was much more to still reveal. In The Escape Artist, Freeman uses both deep honesty and compassion to recount how her mother lived a life of lies to save herself from the horrors of the Holocaust and to protect her sister, who lived as a Catholic in Italy. In turn, her mother expected the same loyalty from her two daughters. The problem was, Helen's sister Lara struggled with serious mental illness in her youth, wreaking havoc on the family and physically lashing out at Helen with anger and hate. As she unravels the truth behind her mother's departure from Europe, we discover more family secrets that paint a complicated family pain filled with compassion and grief.
1: My father tried not to speak of his years as a prisoner But he acted like a man who had lived with beasts. He wolfed his meals in seconds, and nothing my mother said or did could get him to slow down. I can't, he'd say helplessly, it's food. He kept ferociously busy, saw patients day and night, built rock ledges behind the house, planted bushes, mulched trees, and chopped wood. At night, his shrieking nightmares jolted us awake. The next morning, my mother would dismiss them with a weary shrug, saying, the gulag again, as if genocide were just one more annoyance that kept intruding in our lives.
0: Helen, welcome. Thank you. Helen, I have to say, after a long silence, the title of your first memoir is an astute one, because it seems like There's a lot that didn't come out in the first memoir that we're getting in this second one.
1: Well, it is sort of ironic that I titled the first book After Long Silence when I thought the silence was my parents' silence for not having talked about their own history and how they survived the war. And I felt that I was in some ways breaking that silence when in my mid-30s I found out that... Although I was raised Roman Catholic, that in fact my parents were Jewish Holocaust survivors. And so the first book, I put all of the stories that they had never before told us into a book. And I thought I was done. But a lot of things happened after that book was published, which was already over 20 years ago, that made me realize I'd only scratched the surface. And to begin with, as soon as the book came out, I started getting phone calls from people who said, oh, Helen, I've been waiting for all these decades to let you know I'm your cousin. And I found out all of these family members that I didn't even know. So even after all the research and now after all the talking with my parents before writing After Long Silence, after that book was published, I learned so much more that I ended up putting into this book.
0: You know, the series that we're Doing is secrets, lives, and mysteries of our youth. And yours couldn't fit more perfectly because the entire upbringing was based on these secrets of your parents who had, you know, very difficult times losing family. Your dad was in a camp in Siberia, they were separated, they lost their families. Can you tell me how you think secrets and lies from them really wreaked havoc on the psychology in the house?
1: Well, I think that the secrets and lies that especially my mother employed during the war are in fact what saved her life, what made it possible for her to survive. Had she told the truth during the war, she would not be here. And that is she changed identities and pretended to be a Polish Catholic woman by day. And then at night, she would sneak back behind the lines of the ghetto and resume her Jewish identity. And her parents were in hiding behind the ghetto. So she had to lie about her identity. And then later to escape, she had to pretend to be an Italian soldier, a boy. And so she would never have made it out of the war if she had not clung to some significant lies, not just about what had happened to her, but who she was. My father, not so much. He was consistently in his own identity throughout the war. And he had a different story. He was arrested and deported to Siberia for six years. So his survival did not depend on any secrecy. When he came out after the um, war and managed to find my mother... It was really my mother and her older sister who insisted upon continuing the secrets and lies about their identity because of the manner in which they had survived and the people that had helped them. And it was dependent upon their continuing to be Catholic. And my father, after losing everyone in his family... He was willing to go along with the secrets, but they weren't driven by his own need. They were more or less something he did to accommodate the needs and wishes of my mother and her sister. So as the next generation for my sister and me, what had enabled my mother and her sister to survive the war, became crippling and really toxic. And I mean, it was really crazy making because it went to our very identity and it didn't make sense. And our lives didn't make sense.
0: Right, But your mom's at home, your dad's a doctor, you're living a a nice upper middle-class American life.
1: Right. But in the midst of this, all of a sudden my mother would collapse and think, oh no, I should have died with my parents. I shouldn't even be here. My father would all of a sudden be triggered and, and have a memory from the camps. And so we were constantly, being lurched back and forth between these two periods of time, our current upbringing and whatever our parents had gone through that they then would shut down and refuse to talk about. And I think for my sister, again, I think being firstborn, she got the brunt of it. I was a lot luckier. My parents were already used to dealing with raising kids and all that. So I had it much easier. I mean, I did not escape mental health issues, but I certainly had it easier than my sister, I think.
0: It's hard not to read the story of your sister, though, and and not feel so sorry and empathetic to you that you didn't have parents who would protect your safety.
1: I joke about the, the comparative suffering. You know, there's no way, no kid of a Holocaust survivor, whatever your crisis of the moment is, whether, you know, your ice cream fell and, you know, whatever tragedy or you skinned your knees or whatever happens, there's no comparison to the sorts of suffering that our parents went through. And I, myself and my sister internalized those standards, you know, so if my father was starved for six years in the gulag and I was complaining because I didn't like what I was served for dinner. You know, it was really hard to take myself seriously. And for my mother, I think it was really important for everything to be fine. And to some extent, I think that she could not see anything that would ruin her image of a perfect family.
0: I- read Educated by Tara Westover, which of course many people have read. And she had a brother who was so physically destructive with her, would put her head in the toilet. Your sister was physically you know, really like more than just a sibling fight. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder how you got through that because you just kept going back to meet her in a happy place. You had boundaries, but there were many times you would hike mountains with her and go away with her and live with her. I want to know how you
1: got through that. I think in some ways it was sort of a a classic abusive relationship in that I both got the greatest sense of being seen and recognized and loved and known because our family really did stick out like a sore thumb among others. And I had no grandparents. I had no aunts and uncles. And until the first book came out, I didn't think I had any relatives whatsoever except for this aunt in Italy. So my sister and I really, I mean, she was my closest friend, my soulmate. She understood me inside and out. And when she was good, she was very, very good. And when it was bad, it was life-threatening. So when I look at these stories of, oh, battered housewives, and why do they keep going back to the husbands who have done such horrible, clear, obvious physical damage, put them in hospital... And yet when the person who is battering you turns around and is just so loving and sees you so clearly, that overcomes everything. And then that intermittent reinforcement is the strongest way to keep someone connected, is if you don't know when you're going to get whacked. That it can be really, really, and for decades, you know, at a time, my sister and I had a very, very good relationship. I still, to this day, I'm estranged from my sister, but it's one of the greatest losses of my life. I bet
0: you have a really interesting setup of this memoir
1: in that you get a letter after your dad dies. Yes. Um, so after my first book came out, which was in 1999 my father immediately reached out to me and said that although he was disturbed because I had included stories about my family that were not intended for public consumption is how he phrased it but then in his very next sentence he wrote me a letter like a week after the book came out He said well so much for ethical squabbling it's a good book it's really wonderful I'm proud of you and I love you and um, my mother did not speak to me or write to me or anything for three years in fact uh, when I sent her Mother's Day gift that year, she sent it back unopened. So my mother, I don't think, even read the book. My father was already in his 80s and suffering from Parkinson's disease. So he was living at home under my mother's care. I knew that I wasn't welcome at home. Even though my father was okay with me, my mother was not speaking to me. Refused to have anything to do with me. So, my father died in 2001, and that was the first time my mother picked up the phone, called me up, and invited me to come home for the memorial service. And I was overjoyed that she, I'd been waiting for years, hoping that she and I could of repair our relationship. So, I went home and we had a very emotional reunion. And for the next six weeks, my mother and I exchanged these very loving letters until one day I get in the mail a letter from her, but it was actually a letter from her lawyer, and it included my father's will. And the last page of the will basically disowned me and declared me dead, declared me to have predeceased him. And my mother's note was just a small, little handwritten note. She said, "It's a sad and difficult time for all of us," and that's all she wrote. And so, uh, that's how I learned that I was um, I was dead, that I was disowned and declared dead by my family.
0: Why do you think she did that?
1: It took me years to fully understand what. I think happened, but I think she was doing a balancing act, and she was trying to protect the identities of her sister, who was in Italy, and people who had helped save her life, that I think she was keeping a secret about that, even from my father. I mean, the secrets became really twisted, and I was only able to untangle it, I think, by writing this book. I think that she was unable to, um, as she had described something similar to me, she would have had to give up her sister if she were going to embrace her identity as Jewish after the war. And I think that's she had some kind of Sophie's choice. She had to choose either her daughter, Helen, or her sister. And she couldn't, and she couldn't accommodate both.
0: But did she have to cut you out of the will and pronounce you deceased? Being in the will doesn't Make her have to choose between you or her sister.
1: No, I I think that's true. I think that there's a fair amount of family dysfunction that contributes to that. It's not uncommon. This is what psychologists and academics have told me that for the survivors, things are very stark. You either live or you die. You are either a Nazi or you are a victim. And nuance is lost. Mm. It was just much. I'm not saying convenient as she had a choice. I really think that there was something so rigid in her makeup that this was the only way she was able to survive and remain intact to the extent that she could salvage whatever crumbs of sanity she had. Mm-hmm. I think she was quite damaged and traumatized and and quite shattered by the war and and did not have the flexibility to see another way out.
0: Your mom's story, as you say, kept her alive. Yes. You do such a wonderful job of explaining the craziness of it, the psychosis of it, but it is also lined with empathy. And um, I wonder as a memoir writer, because lots of people have very personal stories that they're not brave enough as you've been to write, you did a lovely job of having both empathy and truth. How do you do that?
1: Thank you. I think it took an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of therapy, a lot of patience, and a lot of writing. I mean, I I wrote so many hundreds and thousands, even, of pages that were pure crap, you know, because I was really trying to wrestle with my anger, my sense of betrayal, my sense of hurt, my sense of, you know, guilt – and trying to make sense of it. And I have to say that you know, for a good 10 years, I tried very hard not to write this book, but all the time writing and writing and writing just to try to make sense of, I mean, I'm a writer. That's how I make sense of what I'm thinking about or try to find out what I'm thinking. And then it really came down to getting enough perspective to understand and really bring together all of those feelings. And the fact of the matter is, I have huge, huge admiration and love for both my parents and my sister. And however enraged or however crazy our family was, the fact is, we also really liked each other. And I'm in awe of what my parents went through and how well they did with what they had. So I think that it took me time to reach that point. But it also, I could not release what I was writing until I understood how I felt.
0: I wonder when I think about the three authors we're looking at in this series on family secrets and lies in youth, do you feel free now that you've
1: written this? I feel enormous freedom now. Even if it had not been published, when I finished it, I felt enormous sense of i understand now i'm at peace with this and then you know i also really was hoping to as with the last book to have publication because what you forget when you're working for years in the little tunnel of your own of your own desk is you forget that ultimately we're not alone that our stories are essential. Like I'm alive because of all the reading I've done, all of the people whose own stories and own lives have touched me and made me feel I'm not alone, that we really do share these things. I feel that brings me great sense of camaraderie and community, and we're all doing the best we can. Yeah, we sure
0: are. Helen, it's been such a pleasure Thank you for sharing your book. I think books like this are a generous act, and I hope some other people find some solace and
1: community in it. Thank you. It's a privilege to be with you.
0: The Escape Artist is available from bookshop.org, where purchases support independent bookstores. Betsy Bonner's debut memoir, The Book of Atlantis Black, chronicles her attempt to unravel the mysteries of the life of her sister Nancy, who called herself Atlantis Black and who was discovered dead in a hotel room in Mexico. Hers is the poetically told story of a beloved sister whose path to destruction is both unfathomable and real. The Book of Atlantis Black is available from bookshop.org, where purchases support independent bookstores. On June
2: twenty-fifth, two 2008, A young woman with my sister's IDs was found dead on the floor of a hotel room in Tijuana. Her body had needle marks in the left arm, a wound on the right middle finger, and a bruised cranium. She wore blue jeans and a brown t-shirt that read, Good Karma. My sister had hazel eyes like my mother's. She was 31 and running from felony charges in a prescription drug case in the state of California when she disappeared. By the time I heard the news, the only thing that might have shocked me would have been if my sister had found a way to live.
0: It's amazing the love that I feel you have for your sister in this book. And I just want to start out by saying I'm so sorry you lost her in 2008. Thank you your writing is very tight. There's an irony. You sort of would lovingly write about her, but then make it very clear that you knew she was lost. At what point did you know she was lost? Yeah, I think it was when I
2: visited her in San Diego for the last time. Actually, I was with her, I think it was nine days in a row. And then 11 days later, she was gone. And it was being with her, moving her from sublet to sublet, meeting the people who were prosecuting her, meeting her lawyer, seeing what her daily life was like, that's when I knew. And I knew there was nothing I could do other than be there right then. You know, you can't hold someone's hand for their whole entire life. I had to pretty much leave San Diego and think that might be the last time I'll see her again. And indeed, it it was. How old were you, Betsy? I was twenty nine. I was twenty nine, and she was thirty one. And our relationship the year before, it was primarily email. We did some Skyping, but I was living in Greece. And I really didn't have um, real cell phone access. We would use calling cards, a landline. I would get these messages from her that seemed mysterious and increasingly mysterious. and and then, Suddenly she was so terrified and I assumed she was having a nervous breakdown, but she was then saying, you know, email isn't safe. Nothing is safe. One of the reasons I went to see her was like, you're not telling me anything, you know.
0: Tell us about when Nancy became Atlanta's Black.
2: So my sister, we, we both had one great grandmother's name and one grandmother's name. So she was Eunice Ann and went by Nancy and I'm Grace Elizabeth and have always gone by Betsy. So Nancy started playing guitar at 16, 17, I would say age 16, 17, and she took lessons and she she set her soul in the city of New Orleans. She really didn't have interest in college, but she wanted to go and be in that city for the music and she wanted a different name, she thought No one with the name Nancy Bonner, you know, would ever make it. And she got this name Atlantis in her mind, but she didn't legally change it to that. She just wanted to get rid of our father's name, Bonner. So she legally changed her name to Unisan Black. And then she just started calling herself Atlantis. I would hear her on the phone with people, you know, in charge of the credit cards and the DMV. And she got the name Atlantis onto all of her IDs. (laughs) It was completely illegal. So it was a stage name, but it was also kind of an alter
0: ego for her. She was rising up in the music scene, it seems from the book. But as one person on the back of your jacket writes, you wrote the rock star. (laughs) You're writing a wonderful tribute to that creative vein that she had.
2: So in the book, she, in an interview, she talks about how this producer, Steve Lyon, who produced The Cure and Depeche Mode, and he had expressed interest in her work. And she was rising in a
0: culty way. Her live shows, I thought, really were amazing. Let's go back a little bit about your own background. You have an MFA in creative writing from Columbia. You have a book of poetry called Round the Lake. You were the former director of the ninety two Y Poetry Center in New York. You went to McDowell. You're T. S. Eliot Fellow. It's not just that you're the good girl and the responsible girl, but you chose an incredibly different path than your sister. And you've harbored so much pain of your dad dying of cancer. Your mom, after your sister died, committed suicide. How do you keep going, moving your sister's promise forward?
2: Where do you get that strength? I love that question, my sister's promise. You know, it's true that Poetry saved my life. It's true that good teachers saved my life. Yes, there was luck. I was driven to do what I was kind of supposed to do. <laughs> and Atlantis was more rebellious. I mean, I think I'm rebellious too, but in totally different ways, you know. And who knows how two different siblings who have similar backgrounds. I always assumed that some of it had to do with her having been sexually abused, which did not happen to me. Um, And that was by a neighbor and she was very young. I always thought that's one of the reasons she turned to guitar. And one of the reasons that she herself didn't take life very seriously. You know, like you experience enough kind of getting punched and she was angry. She was also wretchedly unhappy so much of the time. And then She was happy when she was on stage. She was certainly happy when she was able to drink with friends in bars, when that was something she was able to do. But being on stage was, I went to almost all of her shows (laughs) when I lived in New York, and I knew it was important to her that I did.
0: Can we just talk for a minute about your mom, that your parents didn't have a good marriage and your mom was struggling with depression, and your mother decided to move down into the room with your sister? Mm What does that all say to you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. My mother was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I guess, you know, sort of the original trauma for my sister and me, um, our mom tried to kill herself. I guess I was 2 and my sister was 4, so I don't remember it as well. You know, my sister did remember it. And for me, I always had an older sister. She was not maternal, you know, she would chase me around with a knife. She was crazy sometimes, but I always had her. And it struck me she didn't have anyone. And it seemed, it seemed that she inherited something of what my mom experienced. But I don't think my sister was ever properly diagnosed. So that's the other thing. Um, Mm -hmm. from the medications she was taking near the end of her life, they included Zoloft, which suggests uh, we know she was depressed. She Mm -hmm. had clinical depression and anxiety, but there was something that she suffered from that she never found the right drugs for. And I think that for my dad, he had no idea that our mother was even mentally ill, had mental illness. He didn't know. He was a Catholic who'd been in the army. He really kept to himself. He was dazzled by my mom's intelligence. Okay, my mom was depressed. Well, when she was manic, she was a genius. She was a math genius.
0: Yeah. I mean, she was an early uh, computer scientist at DuPont. Exactly. And
2: she had been at IBM before that. She lived in Munich briefly. She wanted children. And it's not a joke when I imagine that she might've been in one of her six-month manic episodes when she met Her father, you know, Mm -hmm. got married within six months of meeting him, got pregnant right away. And then she wanted a divorce after she had me and he wouldn't, he didn't Mm -hmm. want to give it to her. Well, she moved to Alabama. She did. Yeah. She was trying to find a different job. She'd been let go of DuPont because she was rightly so, not in the most effective way, defending the wildlife, you know, DuPont was poisoning the Chesapeake Bay water birds were all being poisoned and my mom told people about it and DuPont didn't like that <laughs> my mom was an environmentalist and ended up being a green party candidate in Pennsylvania for the state whereas my father was a Republican a working-class Republican who became middle class you know they were ill-matched they were so ill-matched and it's kind of amazing that they ended up still together you know but Mostly, that was just my mom giving up and finding a way to
0: inhabit the same house. I want to go back to the line you wrote. You painted the story for us of how your mother went down the hall to where your sister was. Your sister came to you and told you about the boy next door molesting her. And then you have this line about your dad when he sort of spanked your sister when he was angry. And it says, but my sister was his first child, the one he preferred both to please and to harm. And she was persistent.
2: Yeah, I think that from my father's perspective, he had no idea why she would misbehave, why she would, you know, didn't want to go to church, all that stuff. And it's interesting, he I don't know, I do know this, Heidi. I know that his mother was abusive to him. I know that she beat him with a hairbrush. And I know that because my mother Mm -hmm. told me that he told her that. My father never told us that. We didn't talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. He would experience rage. And I never saw him lay a hand on my mom, but I absolutely saw him full of rage at Nancy. And when you're writing memoir, it's like the fact that Nancy called the police and reported child abuse. You know, that helped me mm. feel like okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> you know, I didn't make it right. all up. I mean, it was hard. I'm I'm proud. I'm very proud of the final look at my father that I have in the book because in early drafts, I kind of, you know, do I include that he dies of cancer and that I spend time in the hospital sitting there and yes, of course I do. And the fact that Though he was not perfect, he stayed and he supported us. And our mother was mm-hmm. too sick to support us. You know, what would have happened to us? Mm-hmm. So on that level, his Catholicism and his sort of devotion to being a husband and a father who's there. But for Nancy, my sister, he, she kind of she kind of broke him too, you know.
0: I feel like she just had so much coming at her at yeah. once. And the anger that I actually had is for that boy yeah, next know. door. I was so angry about that. Yeah. This boy molested an eight-year-old girl, and he's not in trouble for that.
2: Oh, no. He, and I checked it, he is a corrections officer, of course, in right. a maximum security prison. That's what he does for a living.
0: Yeah. I found, like, the complexity of your parents, and the complexity is something that, we're human. Yeah. We all have flaws. And I was able to work through those with your writing because it's so poetic, but I'm really angry at that boy.
2: I'm angry at him too. And another, you know, another memoir writing thing, I always thought, well, you know, I didn't see it. I remember her telling me. And we had. We had a neighbor who remembers seeing them together, and it was an ongoing thing. It was not one predatory attack. It's very clear that it went on, and on that level, it's even more disturbing.
0: And, you know, this series is called Secrets, Lies, and Mysteries yeah. of Youth.
2: You know, those predators cause great damage to Yes, kids. they do. I mean, it's just amazing the number of artists, women artists who have had those experiences. I mean it's it's an interesting time to be in now this kind of reckoning. I
0: wish Atlantis could have been able to be part of it. You went on a road trip your mom, your sister and you. You're in a Super 9 motel in New Mexico. There were some very sweet moments with all of you. And your sister's asking your mom about her attempted suicide. You asked them both to stop talking about that and talk about something else. And Atlantis replies, you're lucky not to know what it feels like to want to die. Our stories suck because our lives have sucked your mom says, you're lucky, Betsy. Yeah, I hit the jackpot with you, too. <laughs> your irreverence and irony is awesome. Thank you. Let's go to the third section, where you do start to really turn into an investigative journalist. And you're trying to piece together your sister's death. All these pretty dark characters that have surrounded her. And you name one Gretchen, sort of a cover name. How are you feeling now? I think that, and you're right, with
2: Gretchen, she's the only character whom I gave a fake name to. It's for protection. I have no idea if she's alive. What I know is that she, Gretchen, was a sinister, manipulative person who came into my sister's life when she was wretchedly unhappy. And the other people, the other sinister people, my sister really was in the driver's seat. She was placing these ads on Craigslist, just really trying to attract criminals. So the becoming the investigative journalist, I was given her entire email account when she died. I knew the password. Many of us knew the password. We changed her password after she left this country. She was dead. She was supposed to be dead. She had to be dead. We didn't change the password to lock her out. We didn't do it because I was going to write a memoir. I had no idea. But if we hadn't done that I wouldn't have been able to do some of that investigative work and it was work it was it was hard going through those emails of course there were a lot of rabbit holes then there were the emails in which Atlantis was trying to kind
0: of create a false trail these death reports and the autopsy you don't know if they're true no.
2: I trusted that she had committed suicide and that the reports were probably true for years. That's how my family talked about it. The reality is, Atlantis talked about the possibility of faking her death, and she talked about disappearing. And my family, we thought no one fakes their death. You know, come on. I couldn't handle the faking of death. I could handle her running away. Do you think some days that she's just going to show up? I really at your door? don't think so. I believe she's dead. I don't believe that everything in those reports, I don't think that they were accurate. And I don't think that her death was investigated. And I don't think we'll ever really know. Uh, I do think something awful happened to her. And I certainly wrote the book because of our mother's death. And it was very hard for me not to associate the two, right? My mother's suicide with my sister's disappearance five months earlier. I mean, it was you know it Uh they are inextricably linked yeah my mother never should have died that way and she did die because of what happened to my sister
0: it's an incredible story Heidi the book of Atlantis Black the search for a sister gone missing Betsy Bonner's debut memoir is available from bookshop.org where purchases support independent bookstores Nick Flynn, acclaimed author of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, brings us a new memoir, this time about his mother and his childhood in Situate, Massachusetts. This is the night our house will catch fire, reveals how his independent single mom burned their house down when he was six, while he and his brother were asleep inside. His mother goes on to take her life when life simply becomes too hard for her. Burning down their house was a public event, but that his mother lit it, Was a secret they never discussed. In this searing memoir, Flynn weaves us through his version of pyromania juxtaposed against his childhood memories as he tries to burn down his own marriage with an affair that was kept secret for years.
3: Ice Age. Five perfectly round stones, each about the size of an ostrich egg, sit on my desk in Brooklyn. My daughter, then seven, had gathered them up from Peggotty Beach on the last trip we took back to my hometown. The beach is just off Third Cliff, down from the last house I lived in as a child. Back then, I thought Peggotty meant rocky. Now, each stone sits on my desk like an egg in a bird museum, a diorama showing how all eggs are different, some larger, some smaller, some speckled, some not. I was born in the same place as these rocks, in a town formed by Glacier, situate Massachusetts.
0: Nick, thank you for being on with me.
3: I'm so glad to be here, Heidi.
0: I have to say the line that sort of stands out is page 63, one summer night, our house catches fire, I'm six. How do you look at that night?
3: I don't have a lot of memories from from my childhood, but the fire was one that always did, you know, it was very dramatic and, uh, you know, running through a house that's filled with smoke and, you know, standing outside in the lawn and watching it burn. And it really impacted me.
0: The theme of this series for the Boston Book Festival is Secrets, Lies, and the Mysteries of Our Youth. You unpack all three of those. And I want to understand more about your mother. This book is about her and your relationship with her. You don't speak as much about your father in this book as you did in your last one, of course. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about your mother and describe her a little bit more pointedly for me?
3: Sure. Um, She died when I was 22 by suicide she had been pregnant when she was 17, divorced with two kids by the time she was 20, uh, and then she was just on her own, worked three jobs. She was very independent, very beautiful, very vivacious, full of life. You know, I, I kept track of her boyfriends. So much so that I I could still be in touch with them. I ended up making a documentary film about them, you know, several years ago I hunted 10 of them down or 12 of them down and just asked them two questions, how they had met and how they found out she had died. And for the most part, all of them were very sort of loving and like really good guys, but she was always, you know, on her own. I had this sense of her as just being fiercely independent and not wanting or able to let someone else in.
0: When you think about that time in situate growing up, you know, you went through a lot of difficulties. As you said, your family didn't have much money. You became an addict. Your house burnt down. Different boyfriends in the house. You were able to carry yourself through this. And as people are going through difficult times right now, I'd love to know how you carried yourself and if you're even able to put words to that.
3: I'm not sure if I carried myself or if I was carried. I don't think anyone gets through this alone. I always had like a really good, close friend. You know, I was like sort of the the kid that they would take with their kid on vacation. You know, and then also, you know, my grandmother was also in, in our hometown and she helped raise us. These men too, the, the men that my mother dated, they were these sort of rotating cast of father figures that, you know, I learned something from each of them.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of love inside some very harsh descriptions of what went on in your childhood. And one of the people that you do write about very, for some reason, it was more clear for me, his character was your grandfather. He sort of let your mom be on her own. He didn't come and help out and he, you know, had had a successful business. What did he not understand?
3: It's hard to say. He's an enigma still. He's a type in some ways, very sort of waspy, Yankee He's an interesting person, but I think there was also, there was a lot of alcoholism in, in our family generationally, both on the, my mother's side and on my father's side. And he did not escape that. When I was deciding what kind of alcoholic I wanted to be, you could sort of choose which one you wanted to be, like, you know, functioning or weepy or someone who stayed indoors all day. You'd probably want to be more my grandfather just because he was functional and had did have this business. Although you wouldn't really call him a great businessman. He inherited the business from his father. And I think he just sort of showed up at the office and things went south, really. But he did have a lot of money, though. He inherited a lot of money. So he was probably maybe the richest person in our town. And we were probably one of the poorest people in our town. So that gulf, that sort of class gulf was a very present always in my childhood. It was just obvious that some people had a lot of money and some people didn't.
0: The description that came out, you know, you'd get this shirt from him every holiday at
3: mm-hmm. Christmas,
0: and then you would wear that when you went to have your lunch or dinner with him.
3: Yeah, because he was in the wool business, and he was very offended if we wore any polyester, <laughs> anything that wasn't pure wool. So, you know, when I wasn't around, I'd, I'd wear crazy polyester pants and stuff, which everyone was wearing then. It was the 70s. You know, big, crazy shirts with, like, cityscapes printed on them and big collars and stuff but you couldn't wear those around him cuz it that was really what was causing his business to collapse was the invention of polyester. And so he would give us these Pendleton shirts, these plaid itchy shirts and he just knew you had to wear it when you went to have lunch with him.
0: I just couldn't help but want him to like give your mom some money. Like I couldn't help but want him to like give her some accolades for all she was doing by herself. I wanted to say to him, "Why aren't you helping?"
3: Yeah, I've I've thought that many times myself. What I would have wanted was him to fund her education. That's the enigma. Like, I don't know why he didn't.
0: You know, the most direct route you say in situate is across the salt marsh. Situate really is a character in your book.
3: The reason for that is uh, my daughter, who was seven at the time, began asking me stories about what my childhood was like when I was seven that's when I realized I didn't have many memories. She's like, well, who was in your class in school? I'm like, I have no idea who was in my class in school. Like, who's your teacher? Like, nope, don't have that. What I did have was this story that began with this man that lived in the woods behind my grandmothers, who was like a hermit, like a fairy tale character. He lived in the oldest house in the town, this sort of falling down house. And he was like a hermit, had a long beard and a long coat, and he would go shoplift in the town. And I just became fascinated with him, utterly fascinated. When I found out that he lived in the woods, I could get to him by wandering through paths in the woods to his place. It was quite far away. It's probably a mile away, but I just wandered through the woods to it. And I spent you know, that whole summer just trying to get as close as I could to his house. So I ended up taking my daughter there to my hometown. And so I said, well, let's go. Let's go see this Mr. Man's house. It's still there. So we did go. We went and it's now a museum.
0: Let's talk about the affair. Why did you choose to be so open with all of us in this memoir about that secret and those lies?
3: Around the time when my daughter was asking me what I was like when I was a child was also around the time where the affair was really coming to a head. So the two things were happening at once. Um, And in some ways, you know, the story of Mr. Mann led back to the story of the house the year before as the summer a house caught fire. It really became clear metaphorically that the affair and the fire were connected in that my mother, this was the first house she owned as a young person with her family. And at some point, she set the house on fire in some ways to probably collect the insurance money, in some ways psychically to destroy it, to destroy the life she was living. It's hard to say. But I saw a metaphorical connection to what I was doing in my life, that I was setting my life on fire also. I couldn't just sort of touch on it. I had to really, you know, go into it. It had to be part of the the book itself.
0: You know, you say you were lonely and you felt like you'd been left behind, similar to the fire. I thought that was very astute. And I thought it was very courageous to share so much with us.
3: Yeah. Um, my writing process is one that I allow myself to write anything, you know, any sort of thing that makes me uncomfortable, that, that seems inappropriate, that seems wrong. And then I go back and smooth it out and decide what ends up being public. And this just just seemed like it had to be part of the book. This was what the book was about. So uh, marriage is difficult. It's a daily practice. You know, it is a thing that in the midst of it, we can lose sight of what we're doing. We can sort of maybe feel we've made a mistake. It will often recreate feelings from our childhood. That feeling of being lost and left behind was definitely one that I had as a child. The fire really drove that home. That was the most dramatic sense of it. I'm not really writing the book to reveal myself. It's really to like reveal something that others can see themselves in.
0: Nick, I'm sure you're asked this by your students and by um, many other writers. You have such an ability to go deep on your past. Do you have advice for people trying to access their own past and memories and write memoir?
3: What I think about is all the work one has to do in order to be in the shape and you know spiritual or psychological or even physical emotional shape in order to do the work to write so a lot of the work is getting ready to do the writings there's a lot of things i have to do to get in shape you know there's meditation i have a meditation practice i have a yoga practice i have a therapy i have another therapy i have 12-step programs i have intimate meetings with friends there's sort of a lot goes into it in order to like have that one hour of writing. You know, Stanley Kunitz had said, if you read a poem that you love and you want to know how to write that poem, you have to become the person that can write that poem. Mm. It's not just the act of sitting down and writing, it's, it's actually changing your whole life and becoming that person that can either have, I don't know if it's courage, but just the, the willingness, the curiosity to go that deeply, you know, to trust. But I also say to people like that, you don't have to go deeper than you're allowed to go. Like you, you, can actually go like one step into that dark place and can then come back again. Like I wouldn't pack my bags and move there. That would be dangerous. But just to push a little bit into it and then come back, bring back something from that, and then know that you have another chance. You'll you'll write another book and maybe you go a little deeper then.
0: I'm sensing from many people who either write or make that they're in an observation state right now. Do you want to play clairvoyant with us and tell us what you think is going to happen when sort of the artists get ready to make sense of all this? Do you have any predictions of where writing will go and how the artistic community will interpret this really extraordinary moment?
3: Yeah, I mean, it really is. I'm always a little hesitant to write right out of the moment, to write the 9-11 poem like on 9-12. Although I have done that, you know, I wrote a poem for Boston for the marathon bombing the Mm -hmm. day after it. And I've written some stuff right now about Corona and about BLM. And it does seem like this is a major shift in the world. Like there is like this major shift in consciousness that's happening, which is, you know, that's like the hopeful side that there's a necessary change. Hopefully it'll come out in a positive way where we're, we see where we were going off the rails and we're going to try to find a new way of being. And I think artists will be part of that.
0: Yeah. When is the moment going to come where there's going to be sort of this really creative time? Um, I hope you'll keep writing. Really wonderful to have time with you. I really want people to read your book. This is the night our house will catch fire by Nick Flynn. Thank you, Nick. Oh, hi, This
3: has really been a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: Nick Flynn's book, This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire, is available from bookshop.org, where purchases support independent bookstores. Debbie Porter here with a special offer. Thanks to WW Norton, we have five broadsides by Nick Flynn featuring artwork from This Is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire. We'll send one to the first five listeners who purchase any of the books from this session at bookshop.org. Just send a screenshot of the receipt to us via direct message on Twitter or Instagram or via email at infobostonbookfest.org.
1: And thanks for listening.